Our first scripture reading comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And then from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul, too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, 
they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Some years ago, a woman made an appearance on Good Morning America in order to show off her new look. She had had a facelift, other lifts and tucks on various, and implants on various other parts of her body, Botox injections, lip reshaping surgery, and a chemical peel. She'd been in surgery for many hours, and I can't think what that would cost today. She was 86 years old, and she said her reasoning for doing all this was that there was no point in waiting until she got any, and got any older. I'm not getting any younger, you know. Now, this woman may have looked younger, but we human beings are actually managing to live a lot longer, especially in communities that have access to good health care and good food. There may be babies alive today who may still be alive 150 years from now. It seems like an impossibility, but if we compare the, li the human life expectancy today with how long people lived just 100 years ago, you know, it doesn't sound all that absurd. In the early 1900s, the average lifespan was 49 years. And though there were many who lived a lot longer than that, the average was brought down by the numerous children who died in infancy, the many women who died in childbirth, and the wars and disease that killed the men. If you got to be 61 back then, you would have been considered an old crone, wise, respected. Well, I'm still waiting for that over 61 wisdom to kick in. But now, nearing the end of the first quarter of the 21st century in the US, life expectancy is almost 80 years. Though in the US, we are all the way down at 47th in life expectancy in comparison to other countries. The reasons for that, I expect, would have to wait for another sermon. But we're still way ahead today of 120 years ago. There are people in their 80s fit enough to run marathons. Compared to the folks of Isaiah's time, we have an enormous length of time on this earth to learn, to grow, to live. But of course, the real question is not how long we can live, but how well we can live. And you know already that I don't mean well in the sense of material possessions but how well we use this time that we've been given. Is 80 years long enough? Is 150 years long enough? What would someone living for 150 years do with all that time? Take more vacations? Spend more time at work? Plant a bigger garden? Save more money for a longer retirement? Plant more trees? Love more? Give more? Hope more? If people in the future live twice as long as we do, will they do anything better with their lives than we have? Have we done anything better with our lives than the people of 100 years ago? Or the people of Isaiah's time 3,000 years ago? 
David McCullough, an American historian who wrote nonfiction bestsellers on topics like the Wright Brothers, John Adams, the Brooklyn Bridge. Also, you would probably recognize his voice from some of Ken Burns' uh, programs like the Civil War. He also narrated one of my favorite movies, Seabiscuit. And in an inter interview I saw, McCullough talked about the importance of the study of history, that it helps us um, as we live and make choices in the present, that a, that a well-lived life is, is deliberate, it's conscious, it's, it's well thought, and not just kind of cruise through, oblivious to the consequences of our actions and our choices. And then in response to a question from the audience, he described a framed saying that had been hung over the mantle um, in the house where he grew up. And it said, live every day. Would we do a better job of truly living every day if we could expect to have more of those days to live? I don't know. Though st statistically, there's far less poverty in the world than there was 100 years ago. Somehow today, it, it can be hard to see that. There seem to be just as many wars. Would doubling the, the number of years we have to live make a difference to the world other than overpopulation? Would we choose to spend more of the time we have serving God, serving God's will for good in this world? We'd have more Sundays, more opportunities for, wor for worship, for sure. Maybe that would help. The prophet Isaiah talks about gracious gardens growing in warm springtime sunlight, cultivated and tended gardens which blossom and which most importantly bear fruit. A garden is measured by its produce, the beauty of its flowers, the nutrition or tastiness of fruit or vegetables. A life is measured by its deeds, by its love. What good would there be in a vegetable garden that produced only leaves and vines? A flower garden with no flowers, an orchard with no fruit. Would, what good would there be in a life of any length if it brought no love, no joy? The measure of a life is found not in its length, but in the expressions of love of kindness, of generosity, of righteousness, the fruit. So here we are, a few days after the birth of Jesus, a Messiah who lived all of 33 years and yet changed the world. Since we're coming up on a new year, perhaps it's a good time to think about the choices we make, to look at the gardens we tend. So if our lives are like Isaiah's garden, does yours have rich soil? Does it have good growth and produce? Or has it not been worked properly? Are there a lot of rocks with weak soil producing little growth or bitter taste? As the gardeners among you know, soil has to be turned and tilled and worked to become productive. No matter how long the garden has existed, 49 years or 80 years or 150 years, unless it's tended, 
it becomes choked with weeds or barren. Whether short or long, God calls us to live, not in any old way, but with the qualities of joy and love and generosity and kindness and righteousness. Jesus came to tell us this, to show us this, to demonstrate that this is how God is toward us, and this is the way we're meant to live, in the image, in the likeness of God. The Gospel of Luke tells us about two old people who I very much doubt had facelifts or tummy tucks. Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah. And so Simeon waited, living every day in hope and expectation. Then one day he was led to go to the temple and there he saw two new parents and their infant son. And though he knew that this baby was being brought into the temple to do what was usual, what was customary, the pre this presentation of the firstborn, this particular infant he recognized was far from ordinary, far from usual. Simeon knew who Jesus was and who he would become. And Simeon proclaims that his own life has been fulfilled, producing fruit at that moment, not because he had lived a long time, but because he not only recognized the Savior, the promised Messiah in this baby boy, but he proclaimed it for the first time in public, just what, in that enormous public, just what God was doing, the new thing that God was doing by bringing Jesus Christ into the world. The shepherds had heard out there in the sticks in the countryside, but now because of Simeon's proclamation, the center, the center of the Jewish universe knew. There in Jerusalem, he announced to the bigwigs of the temple, the civic authorities, this marvelous good news. The words of our last hymn are the words that Simeon proclaimed in the temple. Another old person, Anna, her garden was well tilled also. Luke tells us that she lived in the temple spending her days praying and that she too recognized the infant Jesus for who he really was, also connecting the baby boy before her with the ancient prophecies and Israel's hope for the Messiah, spreading the word, telling people, this is the one. Christmas morning at our house always had a few disappointments mixed in with the joy. New clothes, for example. Maybe it's a boy thing, but even now that our boys are grown up, new clothes were not something they got excited about. But new clothes are part of many religious celebrations. At Easter, new dresses and new Easter hats, not that anybody wears Easter hats anymore, but new Easter hats are not just a chance to show off, but they symbolize the new beginning the new life that Jesus' resurrection signifies. In the days of the earliest church, adult baptisms always happened on Easter. And after their Lenten period of study and repentance and preparation, 
the newly baptized were given new clothes on Easter morning. In the Muslim faith, Ramadan is the period of fasting to honor the revelation of the Quran to Muhammad, and the last day of Ramadan is called Eid al-Fitr, or the Eid, which is a day of celebration when houses are cleaned and gifts are exchanged and lots of special foods are prepared, especially sweet ones, and the poor are provided for and new clothes are worn. New clothes in Islam also celebrate a new beginning. The prophet Isaiah talks about new clothes. His new clothes, though, are not made of cotton or wool. They're rather, he says, the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. He compares them to the new and special clothes that a bride and groom adorn themselves with as they make commitment to a new life together. New clothes signify the start of something, something new, a change. Isaiah is saying that the coming of the Messiah will bring a change, a change like that, that we will live not as we have always done before, but differently. The message of Christmas is not really about charity as we usually think of it. It's also not about feeling guilty for being comfortable. The message of Christmas is about change the change that Jesus the Christ brought into the world. It's about the love of God, the grace of God, overwhelming our worry about our sin, our mistakes, and assuring us that the love of God brings us forgiveness, brings us peace. We are thus empowered to order our lives differently so that we can reflect in our own lives and in our own choices the word of God which is incarnate in the baby Jesus, which comes alive and in person in the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Christmas is both a gift and a challenge. Through Christ we are given the love, the grace, the forgiveness of God so that in order that, having the gardens that are our lives flourish, we might truly live every day of our increasingly long and healthy lives. And it might even happen that if we were to make those changes in our lives, making grace and forgiveness and generosity and kindness our priorities, our produce, others will see and know more about who Jesus really was and is today. The beauty and productivity of our gardens, our lives, will demonstrate the love of God in the world. Let us pray. Gracious God, you call us to put on new clothes, the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. May this Christmas season remind us that you have already changed the world. May our lives reflect that change in the coming new year. Teach us to tend our gardens with vigor and hope, bearing kindness and truth, generosity and justice. In the name of Jesus, we pray.
Amen. And now let us stand and affirm our faith. This affirmation of faith in the bulletin comes from um, the Confession of 1967 of the, the Presbyterian Church USA. Let us stand. God has created human beings to be in a personal relation with God's own self, that we may respond to the love of the Creator. God has endowed us with capacities to make the world serve our needs and enjoy its good things. Life is a gift to be received with gratitude and a task to be pursued with courage. We are free to seek life within the purposes of God, to develop and protect the resources of nature for the common welfare, to work for justice and peace in society, and in other ways, to use our creative powers for the fulfillment of human life. 